Welcome back. You're listening to the front page edition of All Things Considered. I'm Michael Higdon. And I'm Lindsay Zients. Judging by campus-wide sneezing and coughing, it's flu season again. And Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Jane Schwed tells us how to avoid getting sick this year. Free flu shots were handed out to students and faculty at the University of Florida Student Health Care Center from 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. today. In the beginning of December, the Center of Disease Control warned the public that the flu season is coming earlier and will be heavier than in seasons past. Here in Gainesville, there have already been 100 cases of flu-like illnesses reported and more than 30 positive cases at the Student Healthcare Center alone. Student Dara Chen and many others are getting the shot so that the flu does not interfere with their studies. I don't want to get sick, especially with 18 credits and a bunch of other stuff going on. Others, such as Professor Tim Davis, are getting the shot not only to protect themselves, but also to protect the health of those around them. I'm also traveling up north to see, some, see my mom and to see some, an older cousin of mine who's 80 years old. and So I'm thinking, you know, I should protect myself to protect them. Student Healthcare Center Marketing Coordinator Catherine Seaman says the flu shot has been provided for over 50 years and has been studied by both the Center of Disease Control and the Food and Drug Administration. So no one should be worried about what's inside the vaccination. She says that it's not too late to get the shot, but it takes about two weeks for your body to build antibodies after getting the shot. So there is reason to get it sooner than later. If you wait until the thick of flu season and you're, you know, around people that are sick, it's very possible you can contract that virus before the flu shot can take effect. So that's why we're pushing people to get their shot if they haven't already. If you do end up contracting the flu, avoid work to prevent others from getting the virus and also get plenty of rest and drink lots of water. This year, Alachua County has had a milder flu season than the rest of Florida, but a slow season does not mean you should skip getting the vaccination this year. It's one of those things where um, you have to change the oil in your car every 3,000 miles. You should get a flu shot every fall. Along with getting the shot, to prevent yourself from getting the flu, wash your hands and take flu antiviral drugs prescribed by your doctor. You're listening to Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Jane Schwed in Gainesville. With healthcare issues at an all-time high, Marion County is taking the initiative to fight diseases on its own. Reporting for Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM, Lauren Verno has more. Marion County is taking an initiative to address the community health problems in the area. With the county ranking in the bottom 25% in factors like chronic illness and death, a new awareness program seems necessary. Marion County partners are developing the Community Health Improvement Plan, or CHIP, which will raise health care awareness. Marion County Health Department spokesperson Craig Ackerman says that this is not just another health care project. This is not the type of uh, proposal or type of plan that is owned by the health care community or by uh, the nonprofits or by the health department. This is something that is owned by the entire community. Ackerman explains how the quality of the health care in the area is not the problem, but other factors. Social determinants are often the drivers in the health of a community. These are things like income, education, employment, housing, access to parks, access to healthy food. These are the things that lead to a healthy community and healthy people. This project is not aiming to raise money, just to raise awareness. We don't have a, a cost basis on this. This is not about cost. This is about mobilizing a community, about putting together uh, groups of people who begin to talk about the types of things that we can do as a community to make it easier to live as a healthy community. The final goal of the project is a simple concept. The outcome is to be a healthier community. 
for the people of Marion County to have uh, less disease, uh, to live longer, to live stronger, to live more healthy lives. This program is continuing to grow in the community every day, hopefully saving some lives in the future. For Florida's 89.1 WFTFM, I'm Lauren Verno. The debate about gun violence in America reignited after the December shootings at Sandy Hook Elementary School. Shortly after the shootings, the Journal News in the White House Plains, New York, ran a story with the names and addresses of registered gun owners in the area. That spurred another debate about proper use of public records. WUSF's Craig Kopp discusses the issue with Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute's Sensemaking Project. This is Making Sense of the Media. I'm Craig Kopp, joined by Kelly McBride of the Sensemaking Project at the Pointer Institute. Hi, Kelly. Hey, Craig. How's it going? It's going all right. We've got a real hot-button issue to talk about today, Kelly. In the wake of the massacre at a Newtown, Connecticut elementary school last month, the Journal News, a newspaper in White Plains, New York, published the names and addresses of registered gun owners in the area. The newspaper said it felt that sharing the information about gun permits in our area was important in the aftermath of the Newtown shooting. But the publication of the identities of legal gun owners caused an immediate firestorm. New York State Senator Greg Ball moved to have that now public information legally restricted to law enforcement only. To take the names of thousands of people who are obeying the law, doing the right thing, they, they're properly registered, and to treat them like level three sexual predators is asinine. Kelly, journalists talk a lot about the public's right to know. I guess this White Plains situation boils down to this. Is this information the public needs to know? Well, it's definitely information that the public deserves to know. But in what form, I think, is the real question here. Anybody could have done what the reporters did and gone to the county governments and requested that information. But the newspaper, in doing so and in putting it in an interactive map and putting that map on the Internet, made that information much more accessible to people. And now we're faced with a legislature that's, that's looking to restrict the access to that information for everybody, because of course they can't control what you do with it once you get the information. All they can control is who actually gets the information. So there are real consequences when it is perceived that journalists or anybody else behave inappropriately with, with public information. Help people out here. How could this information help the readers of the News Journal in White Plains? Well, you know, there's other things that the newspaper could have done with it. They could have published the information without the very specific addresses to show clusters of guns and then compared that data to crime data so that we could have a conversation about whether gun ownership impacts crime data in any way, upward trends, downward trends, any of that. They could have compared that information to lists of felonies or to lists of people on parole and in, in doing that, they would have been able to hold the government accountable for its process and discussing whether it's their, the government is doing an appropriate job in licensing the handgun permits. So the bottom line, did the Journal News serve the interest of journalism in publishing the names and the addresses of legal gun owners, or uh, is it in your mind they were just selling papers? You know, I, I don't think they were selling papers, but I think they fell short on their journalistic purpose. Public records... What are the ethical standards for journalists when it comes to using them? Is it as simple as saying, well, they aren't really public if the public doesn't know about them, so let's publish, which seems to be what the journal did. 
Well, and, and that's true in a sense. But what I always tell journalists is that just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do it. In journalism, there's a higher calling, a calling to help citizens engage in their democratic obligations. And so particularly when you're causing harm to individuals who have done nothing wrong. So you're invading the privacy of somebody who, who is a law-abiding citizen. If you're going to do that, you, you have to be able to articulate a higher calling. So I, I would hate to see these records stricken from the record, from the public record. Be because if that happens, then no one can strive for these, these higher levels of analysis. Kelly McBride of the Pointer Institute's Making Sense Project, thank you for your insights today. You're welcome. As you heard on NPR already today, President Obama has issued proposals to Congress to strengthen gun control. Meanwhile, just yesterday, Florida U.S. Senator Bill Nelson joined Orange County Sheriff Jerry Dimmings in Orlando Tuesday to talk about this very issue. The two spoke to reporters from behind a table displaying military-style assault weapons and 40-60 to 60 round gun magazines, two items Nelson seeks to restrict. WMFE's Nicole Creston reports. Nelson said the AK-47 and Bushmaster assault rifles from Orange County Sheriff's Office evidence locker were examples of weapons meant not to hunt or protect the home, but to kill people. The Florida Democrat said he supports the Second Amendment and owns guns himself, but in his opinion, it's a matter of moderation. I don't want the government telling me whether or not I can own a gun. That's part of my constitutional right. But when assault weapons with huge capacity magazines are killing our children, then it's time for America to act. Nelson told reporters he blames lobbyists from the National Rifle Association for Congress's failure to renew 1994's assault weapons ban in 2004, saying the NRA has lost its way. Nelson also wants to close what's known as the gun show loophole. He says that allows some guns to change hands without a background check. I'm Nicole Creston in Orlando. Where there's a will, there's the way. A free medical clinic in Clay County that provides medical care for uninsured residents who can't afford medical care. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Janie Rodriguez reports how it changed one patient's life in more than one way. <laughs> Smiles, laughter, and free medical care are routine for baby Edwin and many other residents in Clay County, but it wasn't always that way. Since it opened six years ago, the Way Clinic has provided a much-needed service for the community in Green Cove Springs. He is just beautiful. <laughs> for Adela Cervantes and her newborn Edwin, it's a home away from home. I feel a lot of admiration and affection for her because even though we met there, she makes me feel as if I were part of the family. Admiration and affection for Jeannie Galina, founder of the clinic. Back here is our vision clinic. After a weekend retreat at the local church, Galina realized there were many people who could not afford seeing a doctor. In a first-class country like the United States, who is supposed to be advanced in every realm. People can't get medical care, is that really true? So I was really offended by that and I said that's that's not right. There must be something that can be done. 
Cervantes was sacrificing her health for fear of a big medical bill. First of all, because I am not thinking about how much the bill is going to be or what am I going to do if they tell me I have to stay here at the hospital. What am I going to do if I can't afford it? But now she doesn't have to. And to show her appreciation, she offered to clean the clinic twice a week. I feel that I am given a little bit of what they have given me. That's why I feel that I have to be there. It is what I want to do. They don't force me. In fact, they have suggested for me to stop when I was pregnant. But I feel comfortable there, and I am very grateful for that. Now baby Edwin is six weeks old, and nurses like Judith Hepburn help take care of him. If they have enough formula. Uh, until they can get to WIC? Do they have clothing for the baby? Do they have diapers? Um, you know, whatever they need, I can, I can access help for them. Unfortunately, they cannot always help everyone. The clinic only admits the first 25 people to arrive, and this group behind me has already been waiting here since 6 in the morning today, just so they can see a doctor. Something health officer Nancy Mills is concerned about. This can create problems. People congregating at four and four or five o'clock in the morning. It's still dark. You know there can be safety issues. But for Cervantes, it's worth getting up that early. La consulta es muy cara. The consultation is too expensive with private doctors, and sometimes I think about it. I say to myself, well, that's a hundred dollars that I could use to buy some food to eat at home. As a patient, volunteer, and mother, the Way Clinic changed her life. It changed 100% because it was as if it had fallen from the sky. Cervantes will continue helping herself by helping others at the Way. Hani Rodriguez, WUFT News. Florida's official tourism marketing company hopes to draw tourists to the Sunshine State with a new TV show hosted by one of the Food Network's biggest celebrity chefs. As Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palumbo reports, that's why the tourism and marketing company is financing Emeralds Florida. Florida tourism promoter Visit Florida is hoping to kick it up a few notches with the help of one of the world's most recognizable chefs. Emeril Lagasse, who recently moved to Northwest Florida, is the star of the new show, Emeril's Florida. It debuted on the nationally broadcast cooking channel this month. The network says it has 14 million viewers and is quickly gaining more. The first episode of Emeralds Florida highlighted the food of Orlando. We're going to meet some of Orlando's best chefs and get to see them in action. We'll also take you for a quick tour of the nightlife throughout Orlando. This season's 13 half-hour episodes will take Emerald to cities from the Keys to Pensacola, and it's all in the name of supporting Florida's number one industry, tourism. People spend a lot of money on going out to restaurants when they're on, on vacation, and this gives us a, just a really neat way to highlight that and in a unique format that otherwise you can't convey in a 30-second ad or a print ad or an internet ad. That's Visit Florida President and CEO Will Seckham. He says the show is part of a strategy of working in compelling storytelling into marketing efforts. Emeralds Florida is a great example of kind of that storytelling on steroids. Visit Florida is a public-private partnership. It gets money from the state of Florida and gets matching funds from local tourism boards and other business partners throughout the state. The company has invested $750,000 to be the presenting sponsor of Emeralds Florida and could put in up to $1.5 million. 
Seckham says it's a big investment, but Emeril is a big star. He says he saw the star power firsthand during a shoot in Tallahassee. And it's not just to, you know, moms and women. It, it was one of the most surprising things to me was that a couple big old burly bearded guys are walking down and like, you know, that, that's Emeril Lagasse. No way. It, so he, he appeals obviously to a lot of, you know, a lot of different niches. And again, helping us, allowing us as, as a state to promote some things that we might not necessarily be known for. Then we'll head out into the Gulf for some fishing and we'll prepare our catch of the day. Actually, our two catches of the day. That's from the second episode shot in the Panhandle South Walton. Other episodes focus on the cattle industry and Florida agriculture. Mostly, it's about restaurants and bars, like one that Emeril frequents in Santa Rosa Beach called Stinky's Fish Camp. He eats here probably around once a month, and normally he eats here on Sunday brunch. And he likes uh, boudin and tamales, so he's a really big fan of our restaurant. That's Stinky's co-owner and chef, Brandon Jenka. He says he expects to see a 10 to 15 percent bump in business after his episode of Emerald's Florida airs. It happened when the six-year-old restaurant was featured in USA Today, and he says that business boost has lasted for about two years. This will definitely mean for Stinky's that we will be extremely busy after the episode is aired. It isn't the first time Visit Florida has sponsored a TV show. Bass to Billfish on the NBC Sports Outdoors Network was another of its projects. And Seckham says Visit Florida measures its success by television ratings, web traffic, and social media buzz. For Emeralds, Florida, so far so good, he says. It's going to be a fun show, and I was tweeting it all Sunday. So hashtag I was hashtag Emeralds, Florida. Emeralds, Florida, and it was all over the place. So he had a lot of fans. Emeralds, Florida airs Sunday mornings at 1030 Eastern on the Cooking Channel. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. Florida's Chief Financial Officer Jeff Atwater is sponsoring a resolution recognizing tomorrow through next Wednesday as Florida Thrift Week. For Florida's 89.1 WUFT-FM, I spoke with Department of Financial Services Director of the Division of Consumer Services, Tasha Carter, about what Florida Thrift Week entails. The motivation behind Florida Thrift Week is to encourage all Floridians to learn and implement the values of thrift and savings as steps towards long-term financial success. And what will you guys be doing for it? Um, well, the Florida Chief Financial Officer, Jeff Atwater, um, along with the Florida Cabinet, sponsored a resolution recognizing January 17th through the 23rd, 2013, as Florida Thrift Week. And essentially, we are partnering with the James Madison Institute, and um, James Madison Institute is a Florida-based research and educational organization, and its mission is keeping Floridians informed about their government and teaching our youth about the value of thrift. And so um, we partnered with JMI, who has several events that uh, they will host um, during Thrift Week. We also have highlighted Thrift Week um, on the CFO's Your Money Matters website, um, along with general information related to savings and the value of thrift. In addition, the James Madison Institute has also developed a supplemental curriculum entitled All About the Benjamins, Understanding the Value of Thrift. And this supplemental curriculum has been distributed to high school students. And it essentially is a practical publication that shares success stories of people who have faithfully practiced simple acts of thrift and as a result are living their dreams. And what should the public do for Florida Thrift Week? Well, 
Thrift and savings are integral components of any financial plan and the root of long-term financial success for families, businesses, and individuals. One of the things that we would um, suggest that individuals do during Thrift Week is to review their, their current family budgets, you know, to determine um, if there are areas in which they can um, begin saving um, and budgeting a little bit better in order to ensure that they have a, a solid financial foundation. Also, um, look at um, establishing savings accounts and other areas in which they can um, achieve savings, and also review how they're utilizing uh, consumer credit cards as well to determine if there's any opportunity for change there also. And for the people listening, what are some tips for thriftiness? Um, some tips for thriftiness, um, as I said, the first thing that you should do is review um, your budget that you're currently using. If you are not using a budget, it would be very, a very good idea to uh, establish a budget. Um, for individuals that have families, um, children that are going to school, you know, a good idea is also to begin teaching the children about Thrift Week and the importance of saving and how saving can allow them to potentially plan for um, things that they want in the future. Um, School-age children are at an age where it, they can be very receptive to um, new ideas and concepts, and that's a good opportunity for parents and other family members to teach them and educate them as it relates to becoming financially responsible. And hopefully those lessons will carry them throughout their adult lives. As for um, adults, as I said, you know, good, good uh, options to take advantage of would be to, you know, establish a savings or a budget plan if you don't already have one. Um, you know, review your uh, use of consumer credit cards and um, your plan to pay off those credit cards in a sh as short of a time frame as possible. Also, review your credit reports to determine if there's any um, opportunities there whereby you could potentially um, pay off some of those debts to increase or improve your credit score so that you have an opportunity once again to become more thrifty and save more and build towards that solid financial foundation. What does the Department of Financial Services hope to accomplish through this week? Well, one of the things that we would like to accomplish is we want to um, bring more recognition to the practice of thrift. Um, and we want to enhance our efforts to raise financial literacy and also help to promote um, economic development as well. When thrift becomes a way of life, it cultivates responsible consumerism and it also promotes civic progress. And as Floridians wisely use their time and talents, um, work hard, save for the future, and spend less than they earn, the economy move forth in a healthy environment of growth, and individuals will move forward in a healthy financial environment. As a former businessman, Governor Rick Scott likes to quote numbers, but recently people challenged the accuracy of some of the governor's figures, from the cost of Medicaid expansion under Obamacare to the amount of state debt run up by his predecessor and possible future opponent, Charlie Crist. PolitiFact Florida set out to check the governor's figures. PolitiFact's Angie Holan talked about their findings with WUSF's Craig Kopp. All right, let's start with Governor Scott's numbers on the debt, he says, was run up by Charlie Crist when Crist was governor. Crist, of course, was a Republican then, but has now officially become a Democrat, and there's lots to talk about him running against Scott two years from now. In a Miami TV interview, the governor had this to say about the debt that Crist's administration ran up. 
In the four years before I became governor, we'd increased state debt $5.2 billion. We paid it down $2 billion. That's going to cost you money down the road. So we're doing the right things. Angie, is the governor's math on state debt correct? We rated this half true. It was in response to a question about uh, Charlie Crist. But the years that he's looking at are not uh, the years that Charlie Crist signed off on the budgets because the governor comes into office, okay, it's not right away that he gets control of the budget. There's a delay. When we looked at the more appropriate numbers, we found that it wasn't quite that big. Uh, debt increased under Crist by about $3.4 billion, and it decreased under Scott by about $1.5 billion. Now, Scott does have a good point, and the reason this is half true is because debt did decrease under Scott. One more thing I should mention, though, is the increase in debt under Christ was in part because of the school class size amendment. There was money sent to build more schools to fulfill this constitutional requirement that voters approved to put fewer students in each classroom. So that was part of what drove the debt. The other big numbers issue with the governor is the number he was using when talking about Obamacare, that expanding Medicaid coverage under the Affordable Health Care Act would cost Florida $25, $26 billion over 10 years. In a story from our own Health News Florida, legislators and even some in Scott's administration, it turns out, had said that's not accurate. And eventually the number was back down to about 3 to $5 billion over 10 years. Angie, did PolitiFact find a reason for this huge disparity and why the governor was using that number, which so many people said was wrong? Well, the basis for the disparity is this. Medicaid has been a fairly restricted program for many years. You could get health insurance if you were poor, but you also had to be disabled, elderly, or pregnant, or a child. So it wasn't open to poor single adults, for example. The health care law did open up the program, and as an incentive to the states, the federal government said, in the first year, we're going to pay 100% of the new people who sign up for Medicaid. And then it tapers off in a few years, but it never goes below 90% for these new people. The Scott numbers did not count that 90 to 100%. They counted a much lower number of about 60%. Why? You know, they use this number of what the federal government contributed before the law passed. And, you know, we don't know why they did that. Rick Scott says he does not have confidence in the federal estimates over the health care costs. But why they used this different formula is something of a mystery. And that is when the budget analysts in the legislature started pushing back and said, no, you have to create these budget estimates that use current law, not what was in place before. Angie Holan of PolitiFact Florida, thanks for the math lesson today. Thank you. Yesterday, U.S. Senator Marco Rubio was in Jacksonville to talk with employees at Firehouse Subs headquarters. As WJCT Kevin Mearshart reports, Rubio says he wants to find out how happenings in Washington affect businesses in Florida. The nation's debt ceiling was a big topic of his discussion. Rubio says he would only support an increase in the debt limit if it comes with spending cuts. He also says there is a need to increase the number of manufacturing jobs in the country. Rubio says the focus of increasing federal tax revenue should be through economic growth instead of tax increases on the wealthy. 
Rubio says in Washington he gets his information from think tanks, lobbyists, and staff, but it's important to hear from local business leaders about what can be done to spur job creation. You want to grow the middle class? You need to hear from the middle class. You want to grow job creation? You need to hear from job creators. You want to help small business? You need to hear from small and mid-sized businesses. And that's what I hope to be able to do. I think Florida is a great state to represent in that regard because we have diversity in our, in our economy. We have every kind of business and every kind of business owner that you'll find anywhere in America you'll find here. Rubio has also been at the forefront of the debate over immigration reform. He says he wants to modernize the legal immigration system while improving enforcement of illegal immigration laws. Rubio says he wants to deal with the estimated 8 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. in a compassionate and responsible way that recognizes most will spend the rest of their lives in this country. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Kevin Mershard in Jacksonville. Head, heart, hands, and health. These are the values of the nation's largest youth program, 4-H. It's a 100-year-old tradition that helps to empower the nation's youth to become role models in their communities through agriculture. Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM's Caitlin Lawrence spent some time with a Marion County family who has continued the tradition for three generations. It's a quiet home in Citra <laughs> with a lot of life. A small let's have four goats has now developed into having like 30 moms. This is the Silver Bucket Boar Goat Farm where Michelle Spite, her husband, and dozens of goats and other farm animals live. The animals are all 4-H projects that will be shown at the annual Southeastern Youth Fair. Michelle knows it well. She started showing animals about 40 years ago. I wish I was 12. I really do. I mean, I would love to be back involved in it. She passed the tradition down to her daughters and now four of her grandkids. This is where the lessons have to come from, is your grandparents or your parents. You have to feed and water them. Deworm them. And brush them and bathe them. Walk them to get them ready for the show. Banana's lessons don't stop at the simple things. We'll protect your name for today. There's also some unique tricks. That's why to scratch her when she's going. She won't walk away. She'll get used to you touching her. With a Nana like Michelle, the three brothers and sister really know their stuff. What do you want your pig to look like? Um, you want them to have <laughs> big hams. The family is sharing these lessons with other students through a 4-H club they started. It helps strengthen the muscle back here. The kids are teaching me how to take care of their goats. As you can see, this is what they're trusting me with. But even this little guy can wear you out. When they deal with the animals, it's not giving them that extra time where they can go and get into other activities that you might not like them involved in. Research on the National 4-H website show 4-H youth have lower drug and alcohol use than their peers. They're also twice as likely to go to college. I want to pursue a career in agriculture, doing either embryo transplant or working with some other type of genetic. His two brothers aren't far behind, and although little Lydia isn't old enough to show the larger animals. A Spanish white-faced chicken. She's getting a head start for the 2014 fair. But they're all learning responsibility and gaining confidence. <coughs> making for one happy Nana. It's just inspiring to see how responsible they are in handling something like that. And after the work is done, there's still a lot of fun. When the kids are born, there's always a rush to figure out cute names. Welcoming the next generation. Something Michelle hopes to see on the farm for years to come. In Marion County, Caitlin Lawrence, WUFT News.
Members of the Board of Governors heard a report on the investigation of Florida A&M's anti-hazing program today. The investigation came after an incident in 2011 where a member of the school's marching band was hazed to death. The report issued that Florida A&M had failed at implementing an anti-hazing program that complied with state regulations. Since the incident, Florida A&M has been making a change in their anti-hazing program. Executive Director of Alumni Affairs at Florida A&M, Carmen Cummings, says she is looking forward to the school moving in a positive direction. We are hoping for a positive outcome. We've been working very hard um, over the past couple years to enhance our programs and implement new initiatives to safeguard our campus community and uh, move the band forward and also to um, attain the level of satisfaction that the Board of Governors um, anticipates in terms of um, audit and compliance and, and fiscal obligations that we have there. Making changes in the structure of the school is going to be the first step in restoring its reputation. We want to safeguard our community even more so than it is now. We have a number of positions that are currently um, about to be um, filled uh, involving a compliance officer and an anti-hazing officer as well, assistant to the president, so that we can um, allow the students who, who come to Florida A&M to participate in the um, very impressive Marching 100 to continue to do so, but allow them to do so at ease, knowing what the rules and regulations are going to be so that they can participate, make wise decisions, and make sure that we are following uh, the rules, the new rules that are going to be implemented. We're not all privy to what those are going to be, but whatever they are, we know that we will be going to the next level in our effort to make uh, the campus and the, the band and the band programs enjoyable but safe at the same time. This incident is tragic, but the school is using it as a springboard to move forward. The students are buying in to the fact that um, the incident involving Mr. Champion was very unfortunate and very tragic, and it has affected all of us in a profound uh, manner. Uh, but at the same time, it has allowed us to review some of the issues that were a concern to um, state investigators and those here with the board. And there's a new awareness and a new commitment to uh, make sure that we are abiding by the appropriate protocols. The investigation into Florida A&M's anti-hazing program is ongoing and is expected to be presented to the Board of Governors in the future. The board is hopeful that this incident will help prevent others in the future. A Senate panel looking at criminal justice issues unanimously passed its first bill Tuesday. As Florida Public Radio's Sasha Cordner reports, the measure would ban agencies from using drones to spy on citizens in Florida. The bill's sponsor, Republican Senator Joe Negron, says Senate Bill 92 bans law enforcement and government agencies from using drones to gather evidence or other information by monitoring Florida residents. Negron says the bill intends to protect citizens' right to privacy. Drones are fine to uh, kill terrorists in Afghanistan and Pakistan, but they shouldn't be hovering in the sky monitoring Floridians, that that's not something that we believe is an appropriate role for government. The bill does come with some exceptions, like search warrants that are signed by judges using drones for national security purposes or for emergency hostage and missing children situations. The Senate Criminal Justice Committee was the bill's first stop. It has three more stops to go before heading to the Senate floor. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Sasha Cordner.
Members of the Florida Legislative Black Caucus met with Governor Rick Scott yesterday to make requests for legislation and support. But as Florida Public Radio's Jessica Palumbo reports, the lawmakers made little headway, receiving refusals from the governor. Democratic Senator Arthenia Joyner of Tampa says members of the caucus want more evidence the governor's listening to their concerns. She says the communication over the past year has been lacking. I called Maybe you should three yeah. times and nobody ever got back with me, but I'm going to say what we said last year. You and I will have to deal with that because I respect you and I want there to be And I respect you. Okay, so we need to be able to talk. Caucus members asked Scott to do away with the five-year period ex-felons must wait before being allowed to apply to vote. They also want the governor to appoint more black judges and are encouraging him to implement President Obama's health care reforms as soon as possible. The governor has refused all three requests. For Florida Public Radio, I'm Jessica Palumbo. University of Florida's online graduate business program is rated number one in the state and fourth in the nation, according to rankings from the U.S. News and World Report. In addition, UF's online program in education also is rated first in Florida. These rankings are based on wide-ranging criteria that include graduation rates, faculty credentials, and student services. Thanks for tuning in into the front page edition of All Things Considered. This has been a broadcast of Florida's 89.1 WUFTFM. I'm Michael Higdon. And I'm Lindsay Zients.